Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover the novella Ur. Let's start the show. English professor Wesley Smith buys an Amazon Kindle after a fight with his girlfriend. The Kindle he receives is pink and allows Wesley to access books by authors that haven't been written, at least not in this reality. The Kindle has the ability to access various errs or other timelines. Wesley, a fellow professor, and a student also discover that the Kindle can access newspapers from the future. Using that feature, Wesley learns his ex-girlfriend and his student's girlfriend are going to die in a bus accident. Can they stop it? And what about the Kindle? Jay, this is a rip-roaring, crackerjack type of story. Uh, after the initial fantastical setup of a electronic device that can show you other novels and other realities, it quickly becomes a race to rescue the two main characters, significant others. In a story that's very reminiscent of eleven twenty-two sixty-three, and sort of how mm-hmm. the how the pacing works and and how the setup works. Yeah, you can see a lot of the bones that went into or maybe 112263 grew out of in this story. And this was a really interesting book in terms of the fact that Amazon approached King to write them a story to promote the Kindle. Yep. And he was all in. He's like, <laughs> "Yeah, I love gadgets. Gimme, gimme, gimme." <laughs> and he wrote a story about a Kindle. For the Kindle. In three days. <laughs> In three days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's sorta it's sort of funny. And you know, King is one who likes experimenting with format, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did the plant, which was what a serialized ebook, one of the it one of if not yeah, the one very of the first. first. Yeah. Um yeah. he did the riding the bullet, which I think was also uh an early ebook. He did the Green Mile, which was serialized back uh-huh. like in the olden days. Um, he did a few stories that were exclusive to audiobook at first as yeah. well. And I think what's interesting about when he does that, he realizes that the format can also drive how you approach the writing and impact the story, which is an interesting way of looking at it. And I think when we started reading this, you texted me and said, Wow, this is a story that needs to be read on a Kindle, mm-hmm. even though it's been published elsewhere afterwards. I agree, and I think I went old school for me and went to my old Kindle to read this, uh, as opposed to picking up the book. Um, and I think you read it on a Kindle as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So a- as you said, this is a. We'll give you a little background for those who may not know the history of this. Uh, written exclusively for the Amazon Kindle, this story was published on February twelfth, two thousand and nine. Eventually, an audiobook of Ur came out in February of 2010 and it was read by Holter Graham and the only reason I mentioned that is because he's an actor whose first film was Maximum Overdrive directed by Stephen King Um, and he's also read the audiobook for Christine so he has multiple Stephen King connections is Uh, that why Holter Graham is a household name (laughs) yeah a household name to this day (laughs) (laughs) um King, you had mentioned earlier about how he was excited about writing a book for the Kindle about the Kindle because he loves gadgets. But in the end, he also said, I did it because it was interesting. I'm fairly prolific 
It took three days and I've made about $80,000. You can't get that for short <laughs> fiction from Playboy or anyone else. It's ridiculous. That's so transparent, though. He's like, eh, in what other way could I have made $80,000 off of three days of work? I know. Like, maybe if you're on Jeopardy, you know, like, that's the only other way you could do it. Uh, so you had pointed out that this was written for the Kindle, but it was actually the Kindle 2, right? A second generation? Yeah. Amazon had had some pretty good success with the first Kindle. And then I think they made like the Kindle DX or something. They made a bigger version mm. and that didn't sell as well. And then they, they decided, all right, we're going to release the Kindle 2. And it was smaller. It had like a more compact keyboard and it cost a little less. It was a little bit easier to afford. And this was part of this story was part of that promotion. Mm. I believe the story was released on almost the exact same day as the Kindle 2 was announced. So it was available to purchase through the Kindle store, you know, the same day you could buy this new Kindle. And I say it's a little less expensive because in 2009, the price of the Kindle at launch was $359. Yikes. Which, yeah, it's a lot of money for a non-necessary electronic gadget. One that didn't even like no audio, no touchscreen, I don't think, right? Like it was all right. Yeah, it was just a black and white simple gadget for just reading books. Yeah, I mean, we can try to justify $1000 smartphones today because they connect us to everything in every way, right? Yep. So, it's still far too much money for what <laughs> uh for what, you know, this thing we put in our pocket, but for something that just read ebooks, nearly $400 is a, a lot to uh to ask, but they still sold a lot of them and um uh, but it also made me wonder like did Wesley's purchase of this device for spite for, you know, breaking up <laughs> yes. with, with his girlfriend. Uh it seemed like maybe maybe that was like one of the the least realistic things that happened in this story. Like, oh, this uh, you know, college professor who probably doesn't have a lot of disposable income, he's going to drop $400 on a Kindle just to get back at his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in addition to it coming out on Kindle, um, in 2015, it was later published in Bazaar of Bad Dreams, which is a collection of stories by King. And what is interesting about that is that there was significant revisions made to the story, mm. as King tends to like to do. A number of them are along the lines of, hey, I don't need to explain what a Kindle is because they've been around for at least six years now, and it's not this fancy new gadget that, where do the books come from? They come out of thin air, Professor Smith. Everyone uh -huh. knows that. I wonder if it can connect to the internet. The internet, you say? <laughs> I'm going to post an article in the show notes that talks through some of the changes. There's a couple of places where things are trimmed out and character's name is changed. Uh, but I think the most significant deletion is about the JFK assassination and some alternate timelines, uh, probably because he knew that 112263 was on the way. So he, he did want to repeat himself there. So I'll post that. We did not do a side by side reading of this, and both Jay and I read. The original version and not the revised version from Bizarre of Bad Dreams. So for all of you completists out there, that's where we stand. You know, this story was, I guess, kind of falls into the category of like fixing the future by knowing the past or the time travel story, if mm -hmm. you will. And King has explored that from a couple of different angles. The most, uh, I guess, direct version of that story is 112263, where the character actually travels back in time. 
right to change something that will happen in his perspective of the future but i really liked his twist in the dead zone where he makes a character able to see the future and he sees a dark future coming so he tries to stop it so he doesn't travel through time but he can see ahead and it's really an exploration of the same idea though like if you could go back in time and change something tragic would you do it right. and, and at what cost and 112263 is more direct in that and this is kind of like the dead zone a little bit where the kindle gives them that view of yes. the future and now what are they going to do and at what cost agreed have you ever seen the christopher walken saturday night live skit that mocks the dead zone uh-huh it's fantastic you're gonna get an ice cream headache <laughs> right here and it's gonna hurt really bad <laughs> The best part of that is every time he grabs somebody, the, the dramatic music that, that plays, and they're like, oh! Uh, all right. So, you know, this story's interesting because in some ways, I, I said it before, and I think Cracker Jack's the way to go. Like, it is a very quick read. I was rushing through it. The idea, like, the, the whole idea of like, hey, look, a Kindle that can read alternate books and then tell you the future and then this race against time to to save the girlfriends you're like wow this is really good and well written for the most part but there's some parts mm -hmm. that just sort of like drop off and when you spend too much time thinking about it it's just like ah uh, you could sort of tell the king probably whipped this off in three days and again jay and i have a tendency to want to give king a higher standard to clear than most things i think if i written this i would be proud of myself for the rest of my life and be like hey look at this <laughs> great idea i came up with and it's well written and people are going to love to read it and then but for king it's sort of like oh yeah there's some corny stuff in here mm -hmm. yeah it definitely did feel like it was a little creaky around the edges it was like he wrote it in three days and nobody edited it <laughs> but i'm sure uh, jeff bezos was happy to write that eighty thousand dollar check so it's all good mm -hmm. It's all good. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is this whole concept of Ur novels. So, you know, there is a, a in the Sandman, which Stephen King is a fan of by Neil Gaiman, um, a, the concept that, that Morpheus, who's the Lord of Dreams, is also the Lord of Stories. And in his mm -hmm. realm, there is a library that contains all the books that authors never wrote. So you can go into this library and see the books that could have been written by, by authors. And King sort of explores that here with the fact that there's all these novels that other that Hemingway would have written or Shakespeare would have written if, if he had had time. But the one constant that the main character, Wesley Smith, notices is that there tends to be an Ur novel, as he calls it, sort of the one book that is always constant throughout that person's oeuvre, whether they're in Ur, our world or Ur 3,476,19. And it made Jay at least come up with an idea of like, what would Stephen King's Ur novel be? What What's the one book that would transcend space and time in all realities? I liked giving myself that that challenge to to think of of all the books that he's written and the ones that I that I am familiar enough with. Which one would always pop up no matter what happened to Stephen King in these other Urs, right? You know, if you wrote only crime novels, he would still write this one book. If he didn't write at all, he would write this one book or something, you know, yeah. or if he, you know, died after just one, 
<laughs> it's this book. And um, I think it's The Shining. It's, it's an important book in his body of work. It's probably not the most important. It's certainly not the most famous. But I think that there's so much of himself in that book. It's one of the books that he wrote that was largely about his own struggles with addiction. And I think he was trying to exercise some of these darker things in his own psyche by creating this character of Jack Torrance. And I suspect that no matter what King ever accomplished otherwise, he always would have written this book for that reason. So when you put this challenge to me, my immediate thought was The Stand. And then I struggled with, well, maybe if it's not The Stand, is it The Dark Tower or is it It? Could it even be Salem's Lot? And the more and more I thought about it, I realized that you had the correct answer, that The Shining. Ah. The, the Shining, I've thought about it a couple different times over the past I week. Win. And it totally is The Shining because let's say, for instance, he didn't become a horror writer at all. He could still mm-hmm. write The Shining. It's not it 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 has horrific parts, but it's not a horror book. It's a psychological thriller. If he became a literary, a total literary writer, this could be the one book that stood out as sort of like, hey, he's he's messing in genre a little bit by by doing mm-hmm. this. Um, and the fact that you said it's so personal to him, uh, I could totally see this as being his novel. And I think that you've probably stuck uh, stuck a pin in the right book here. So you win a no prize. Great. Just going to set it on my shelf next to all of my other no prizes. <laughs> nice. So the other thing that both you and I thought of is if you had an Ur Kindle and you could, um, you could see how both of the professors in the book immediately go to the subjects that they're most interested in. So mm-hmm. Wesley Smith is a 20th century American scholar, so he goes to Hemingway and finds out what else did Hemingway write and comes across, what is it, Cortland's Dogs. And yeah. sort of like, hey, I'm going to read this. This is fun. And his uh, professor friend, who's uh, Ullman of the Ullman brothers, uh, mm-hmm. he he immediately, as a Renaissance literature professor, goes to Shakespeare to find out what else Shakespeare written. So, Jay, if you were to pick up the Ur Kindle, and obviously the correct the answer that both of us would probably go to right away is Stephen King. But if you could yeah. go to some other author, second on your list. What would be your uh, the author you would search for on an Ur Kindle? Yeah, after I looked up King, and after I looked up George R. R. Martin to see if he actually finished Game <laughs> of Thrones and another Ur, um, I would look up Edgar Allan Poe. I really like everything he's done, and he died young, so I suspect he had a lot more in him. Mm. If he had lived just one more year, how much more would he have put out? If he had lived another decade, how much more would he have put out? And he was starting to kind of experiment and, and develop new types of stories. Uh, when he wrote Murder at the Rue Morgue, I think that was one of the first, if not in any language, perhaps in English, of like the detective crime story Yep. that, you know, eventually grew into things like what Arthur Conan Doyle did with Sherlock Holmes and, and things like that. Uh, it started a long tradition of the crime story that I love. So... If there, if there were another Poe, Murder at the Rue Morgue kind of story, I would love that. Yeah. I brought up an author who's brought up in this novella, John D. MacDonald. Uh, there have been rumors ever since John D. MacDonald died that there is a final Travis McGee book. And if you're familiar at all with the Travis McGee book, they all have 
colors in the title and that there is one with black in the title in which it is the last book and it's the finale in the series. And there's still rumors, even though John D. McDonald's been dead for decades now, that it's sitting in a vault somewhere, the the, the black book of, of Travis McGee that would wrap up the series. And I guess I would want to look to see if that book was actually written. I think at this point, it's probably an urban legend, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it's still out there. It It's like uh, when Mozart wrote his Requiem, <laughs> yes. right? It is what killed him. Like the <laughs> act of writing it killed him. So yep. he didn't have a Salieri to uh, <laughs> scribble down the music for him as he died. All right. Well, the plot of this book is fairly straightforward and there's not a whole lot to, to dig out. I mean, one of the one of the big things that you probably noticed that we might talk about in another Ur podcast would be the fact that there are so many authors mentioned. And I yeah. wonder if it, it's looking back on it, it's almost like uh, Amazon said, hey, could you do some product placement? Can you put as many authors as you might recommend, King, into this <laughs> book? And we'll link directly to them so that users can buy them. But like King just name drops over and over again, all these different authors, which is to be expected. It's about two college professors in English, uh, one of whom absolutely loves books. So they're going to be talking about books a lot, right? So you get the guy who wrote Deliverance and you get Shakespeare and you get Poe and you get John D. MacDonald and you get Hemingway and any number of other crime writers. But we're not going to go into in depth on all that. But of great interest to those who listen to this podcast is the fact that this book is so related to the Dark Tower in so many ways, but of real interest is how the low men are, are thought of. So at the end of the the story after, in the denouement, after the girls have been saved and everyone looks like they're going to live happily ever after, Wesley Smith gets a visit from two low men in yellow coats. Yeah. Like absolutely low men in yellow coats. He gets a weird vibe from them. Their faces don't look quite right. They've got a car that seems like it's alive. They're wearing yellow dusters. They are totally the low men in yellow coats. And what is odd about it is we've now encountered the low men in yellow coats in the Dark Tower series itself, Mm -hmm. in Hearts in Atlantis, Yep, and now in this novella, Ur. And in all three instances, even though they are the same characters, it is unclear to me that they are the same types of characters. They all seem to have different roles in those books and different I don't want to say personalities because they're not individual characters, but different characteristics, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. And in addition to the three books you just mentioned, there's a version of them in, I believe it's The Regulators. And um, it's like King loves this idea, but every time he writes The Low Men, they're different. And I don't quite get it. Yeah. I I don't understand why they're different. Even within this story, they seem to be contradictory. Like just like they, they are wearing the yellow dusters and have the sigil of the Crimson King on their dusters. And Wesley sees this sigil, notes how it freaks him out a little bit. <laughs> how it seems like it's watching him. Yep. But what they say to him and their concerns seem to seem to belie the chaos that the Crimson King has them, you know out in the universe doing like he seems like the the crimson king wants chaos the crimson king wants to take down the tower Mm -hmm. but these low men seem to be agents of the tower yes they are there to enforce the continuity of the timeline and 
things shouldn't change. Otherwise, it could be worse. And if you were an agent of chaos, wouldn't you want worse? Wouldn't you want change? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they seem more along the lines of the library policemen or the Langoliers mm-hmm. in other Stephen King books, where they are trying to maintain the straight and narrow, keep the timeline on its proper path, and get rid of any inconsistencies and potential paradoxes along the way. Whereas when we see the low men, I think it's in book five of the Dark Tower, and they have all these portals into other dimensions. And it's like, hey, come take a look at the Kennedy assassination or come look at this. And it's like they're Mm -hmm. encouraging that overlap and those potential paradoxes. And here they're very much upset with Wesley for potentially going out of lines of what he, he shouldn't have gotten the Kindle. He shouldn't have read those other books. And he definitely should have read the future and then changed it based on what he knew. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it is odd to me that the low men are used in this way by King. Yeah. And I mean, it just building on that a little bit, there's a line that one of them says, because of what Wesley changed, the tower trembles, the worlds shudder in their courses. The rose feels a chill as of winter. Like, did they know about the rose? Yeah. Maybe they did. but. I mean, at one point or another in the the various visits to New York City in the Dark Tower, where they're protecting the rose and they build things around the rose, but when it's just a vacant lot, I think there's a, is there an All Hail the Crimson King graffiti at some point? I think so, yeah. um, So it feels like somebody, someone who knew the Crimson King knew about the rose, so maybe all the Cantoi do, but it also seemed like something that had no defense at that point and could have easily been destroyed. Why didn't a low man just drive up in one of his freaky cars and step on the rose, you know, or right. just snip it and stick it in his lapel next to the, <laughs> next to the sigil emblem, right? Like he could have done that, um, but that never happened. So it seems, yeah, it just seems like they're a little all over the place and it's easier to, to see why King might evolve certain things over time, because maybe he he hadn't thought it through yet. He wrote this like many years past between these books and things. But when he wrote this, he was well on his way to having like a lot of that stuff figured out, right? Oh yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah, definitely. Like yeah, the series was done at that point. Yeah. So why change the low men in this fundamental way? Yeah. Like who is their boss, and why do they care? Right. All very interesting. Uh, and, and I don't know if this is a, a paradox or, or the change for this, but they say all things serve the tower as opposed mm. to the all things serve the beam, which we heard over and over again in the Dark Tower series itself. And it does seem like a, a switch for them, that they are there to serve the tower. And that's what gets Wesley out of his trouble that he's in because (laughs) it's unclear what's going to happen to him if he's going to be taken away and executed as part as a way of fixing the paradox or or what's going to happen but he uses some sort of star trek logic to say well if all things serve the tower and i got this kindle and you don't know where it came from maybe the tower meant me to have it and maybe i was supposed to read the future and change it and that's how you know that i did the right thing after all and with impeccable logic like that the low men have no choice but to let him off the hook and give him a a stern (laughs) warning don't ever do that again sir yeah good day sir 
I said good day. Yeah. Well, if we haven't already mentioned it, there are a number of Dark Tower thinnies here, Jay. Yes, there are many Dark Tower thinnies. Uh, we just spent a while talking about the low men in yellow coats, but in addition to that, the Ur Kindle that Wesley gets actually has an image of the Dark Tower on like <laughs> the the cover page of, of one of somewhere in his menus. So it's right there. I mean, this is clearly like a, a you know North Central Positronics device or something like that, right? It's Absolutely. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's odd. What's this tower doing on my Kindle? Mm-hmm. so king has me so well trained i'm like a dog at this point wesley randomly chooses errs based on birth dates and and just sort of going through and there's literally millions of them and every time a number of of an er is mentioned i started adding up the numbers to find out if they <laughs> added up to 19 <laughs> and guess what they didn't uh there was a couple of cases where i think his mother's birthday might have been on the 19th of a month um yeah and but other than that, there wasn't sort of and I'm like, this is an obvious thing for King to do, wouldn't it? Wouldn't why wouldn't he just have the numbers add up to 19? Instead, he makes a fool out of me having me count them all that time. I'm sure he's sitting somewhere laughing his ass off. Yeah, it's like I wrote it in three days, guys. I didn't do any math. <laughs> um, another obvious one is that each Ur is another world or another level of the tower. Other worlds than these. It's it's like, OK. You know, we're we're just getting yet another perspective of how there is a multiverse in this, you know, Dark Tower universe, and uh, they're all just duplicates of, of each other. Sometimes the differences are subtle, and it's like the money in your pocket, and sometimes they're really dramatic, like the wastelands, you know? Right. It's uh, post-apocalyptic stuff. Yeah, I, I like I like thinking of this as sort of the uh, the ancillary series to the Dark Tower, like... You know how they're doing the Star Wars saga, and now they've got the Star Wars offshoot movies that aren't part of the main saga, but are a Star Wars tale. And this almost seems like it's Ur, a Dark Tower tale. And it doesn't start off with the fanfare and the and the scroll, but it's still got all the relationships to the rest of the universes, the Dark Tower stuff. So you're saying King wrote this so that we would understand how Chewbacca got the nickname Chewie? <laughs> yes, exactly. And why Han Solo's last name is Solo. Yes. Information we all needed. <laughs> uh, at one point, Wesley prays and he says he's unsure if it was to God or that mysterious dark tower that he was praying to. <laughs> like, he quickly uh, internalized that whole dark tower thing, didn't he? Like, yeah. all of a sudden it was like, hey, what is this dark tower? And I don't understand this. And all of a sudden he's basically praying to, oh, will you save me, dark tower? <laughs> <laughs> Save me, Jeebus. <laughs> uh, um, one thing that I kind of think of as a Dark Tower thinny is that there's a moment in the story where Wesley and Robbie, his student, are they're in hot pursuit of the, the drunk driver who is going to cause the deadly accident with the school bus. And they both get really, really angry with her at one point, and they both sort of come to the conclusion that they're angry enough at this candy rhymer drunk driver that they realize that they're willing to kill her to stop the tragedy and that maybe in that brief moment they become gunslingers mm. uh, and i don't mean to make it seem like you know gunslingers are murderers because i don't think they are but gunslingers are killers and that's kind of a hair to split right right um but 
gunslingers will take lives without hesitation if it's for what they think of as the greater good. And that's what Wesley's doing. They're not looking for random people to kill because they have information from the Kindle. They're looking to stop a tragedy that would affect an entire school bus full of college students and teachers and coaches and things like that. And for them, in that moment, in the, those circumstances, they were making that gunslinger-like calculation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it justifies it, and King doesn't take them that far to force them to actually make that decision or act on that, on that impulse, but I think it was sort of a gunslinger moment that maybe if Roland had been there, Roland would have said, yeah, I'm just going to shoot this you know, <laughs> candy rhymer and not let her drive, not let her back in the car. I'm just going to kill her. That's the simplest, most straightforward, permanent, can't, you know, avoid the outcome I want type of action. So maybe that's what Roland would have done. Right. I was going to argue the point with you about this, uh, you know, and, and sort of say, well, maybe in another Ur, they are gunslingers and this is it. But elsewhere in the story, they said that the one thing that they noticed, and I think it's the it's it's Professor Ullman who's who points it out, is that people's character still stays the same across the different Ur's. So hmm. they all look at what happens in the election in 2008. And even when Obama is an elected president or is even the Democratic nominee, he never becomes vice president. And that's because they said it's not in his character to ever do that, no matter what ur you're in. And so that's yeah. sort of the thing that goes across. And so I wonder if Wesley and Robbie probably aren't gunslingers in any ur, but they probably always try to do the right thing in every ur. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's a it's an actual crisis of conscience, right? They talk through it yeah. together and like, should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? And you could sort of see Roland would be rolling his eyes and doing his finger gesture like, <laughs> all right, just get to the point, guys. Do what you're going to do and not think and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So it took me a while to get this. And then when I realized that it, it seems so obvious, the one thing that sets Wesley's Kindle apart from everything else is that his Kindle is pink and all the Kindles at that time were white mm-hmm. and only white. And we're like, oh, well, that's just a way of indicating that, hey, this Kindle sort of strange and odd. And then I realized that it is pink, just like the wizard's glass. Yeah. And not only is it pink like the wizard's glass, it has a lot of the same attributes. It is an addictive force mm-hmm. that pulls Wesley in, in this case. Um, he sort of can't bear to be apart from it. He constantly is going back to it. He's losing sleep because of it. Uh, at one point, he starts to zone out and says, well, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to use it today. I'm not going to read the Ur Kindle today. And next thing he knows, he has it in his hand and he doesn't even remember picking it up. And and he he's almost falling into it. I think he even says that at one point, that he has to keep himself from getting drawn into the, 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 the Kindle because of that. And uh, it just reminded me how the Wizard Glass does that. And it also shows people pieces of the future, pieces of other realities that can confuse and change that person's headspace uh, in great deal. So um, obviously it was King being intentional and not as uh, sometimes he can be subtle about things. And it took, it it was very subtle for me because it took me a while to pick that up. Although I'm sure we have some very smart listeners out there like, Oh yeah, it does Sean. We do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you, you picked up on that, that subtle cue because I didn't pick up on it at all. So, but once you pointed out, Oh yeah, you're (laughs) totally right. And just like the wizard's glass, it says, oh, I'll, I'll show you the future, but I'm going to show you just the, the horrific snippets of your future, like when these horrible moments will happen in your future and nothing else. And then it'll like 
sucks some of your life force away from you at the same time. And what does he say? There's a, he thought that one of the universal truths of life was that sooner or later, someone always paid. And he knew that even in getting this information, there was going to be some sort of consequence for this. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how the wizard's glass works too, right? Like every action that's taken as a result of that, there's, there's a consequence because of it. So, well, we have quite a bit of fun stuff for what is a 60 page book. Jay, do you want to kick us off? Sure. The first thing that I wrote down in fun stuff is that Stephen King keeps trolling Ringo Starr. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I know there was uh, somebody had a dog named Ringo and we're like, maybe it's that. And then one of our listeners said, actually, there was a Western named Ringo and he was a, he was a gunslinger and maybe it's that. And I, 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 I think that's right. But I also think it's King throwing shade. And in this story, he makes the Beatles a constant. They're in yes. like every er that has music and it is always the same members of the band except for Ringo. <laughs> Ringo's the one who keeps sw switching out with other people. So clearly he's the only replaceable member. Yeah. Yep. I loved the subtle jabs at academia throughout this novel or the mm. short story. Um, they're mostly at the beginning of the book, uh, but Wesley, as a lower level professor, has to share an office with another professor. When I was in grad school, I was at an even lower level than Wesley would have been. And I had to share a very small office with three other grad students. So I totally got that. The fact that they they call Moore College a good school, which really meant like it's just sort of a mediocre school, but like people in the area know it is a university. So therefore, it's a good school. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been to plenty of institutions like that. And the way he describes the classroom of his students as being a bunch of people who aren't very interested in literature and are just there to take the class. And maybe you've got one or two standouts like a Robbie. Um, hey, I taught those classes. <laughs> totally get it. For, uh -huh. for, for somebody who hadn't been in academia for decades at that point, King really hit the nail on the head. For sure. So for a book that King wrote in three days and maybe could have used a little bit more editing... <laughs> He had some really, really great writing in this. And one example of that is this wonderful line when Wesley's thinking about the dreams he's going to have later or something as he's trying to make himself go to sleep. And he wants to hear the sound of the wind, the beautiful sound of the wind telling tales of Tennessee, where it had been earlier this evening. Mm. I just love that. Uh, I love the idea of that the wind is telling tales because the wind is moving around and it's picking up info from here. and telling that info over there and yep it it made me think of just a breeze in a totally new way i love it <laughs> so good on you there king for that one also he's gotta stick in some of his favorite alliteration yes is telling tales of tennessee <laughs> yeah good stuff uh we mentioned earlier about how one of the features of the kindles that he mentions all these authors that hey you can buy right now and in, in, in this kindle that you're holding that you bought for my story. Uh, but one of the other things that was interesting is that Wesley Smith, when he sees that the Kindle has a section called Ur, he says Ur, so far as he knew, had only two meanings, a city in the Old Testament and a prefix meaning primitive or basic. And I used my dictionary function on my Kindle to verify that by looking up the <laughs> definition of the word Ur, and that's in fact what I got. So I just thought that that was pretty neat that he pointed out another feature of the Kindle within his story about the Kindle. Yeah, that's good stuff. 
might even say it's fun stuff. <laughs> the other really great line that I wanted to point out here is the line that he has in his fake Hemingway novel, Cortland's Dogs. And I think that this is an opening line that rivals and the gunslinger followed, right? Like, <laughs> this is really good. And I kind of wonder, like, what is King doing, like, throwing away this line in this story? <laughs> right. But the whole line is, a man's life was five dogs long, Cortland believed. The first one was the one that taught you. The second one was the one you taught. The third and fourth were the ones you worked. The last one was the one that outlived you. That was the winter dog. Cortland's winter dog had no name. He thought of it as only the scarecrow dog. I want to read the rest of that book. <laughs> totally. Like, I totally want to read that. And it's just here like, yeah, I'm just got I got to make up a fake Hemingway text, you know. Yeah. <laughs> clickety clickety clack and there you go, Cortland's dogs. God. Well, if King ever publishes the rest of this story uh, <laughs> under another name, well, I guess we'll, we'll recognize we'll, it. We'll know about it. Yes. <laughs> My last fun stuff is that at one point, one of the characters talks about James Patterson probably has written a book since he got up this morning, making fun of James Patterson's notorious way of churning out books. And he actually has a whole factory behind him churning out books. And I actually know somebody who wrote a James Patterson graphic novel oh. that has James Patterson's name on it. But uh, my my buddy was the one who wrote it. Hmm. So it really is a like a, a factory that can put out a book a day. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, another fun stuff item I had was when Wesley was reading about uh, all these other worlds and how they seemed as unreal as actors on a movie screen, that he was thinking about how when you're looking at the screen, that the, the people you see there were, were big and often beautiful, but they were still only shadows thrown by light. Mm. And that made me think of Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which... Whenever I think of Plato's Allegory of the Cave, I also always think of They Might Be Giants and their song, No One Knows My Plan, because there's a line in there about the allegory of the cave by the Greek guy. Nice. Anytime we can bring up Weird Al or They Might Be Giants, uh, we, we will do so. That's right. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash two guys dark tower if you like the show please rate us on itunes jay we've got a number of reviews recently both for the united states and australia and a few other places over the past few months so thank you all for those reviews we've been reading them and really appreciate the support and the five-star rankings that helps us get the word out about the podcast so thanks yes please keep them coming next episode join us as we cover the first dark tower graphic novel the gunslinger born we're excited to uh delve into the comic books jay yeah for jay russo i'm sean mcgurr thanks for listening can't spell mcgurr without her 
Nope. Oh, will you save me, Dark Tower? <laughs>